Hey everybody, it's Richard Harrison Scott Lease with another edition of the Surfing Sales Podcast 2021, brought to you with Salesforce Revenue Cloud, very specifically uh, Lead 411, Vidyard, and Wingman. Um, as you try to grow your 2021 revenue, these are the tools you need to have in your sales stack. These are the places you need to go and research to understand how to encourage your teams to be better and be better and be sure to hit up Scott Lease uh, directly, uh, scott.lease at gmail.com. He'll be glad to, you know, shepherd you through all these processes and probably even run some demos for you. Um, well, at least you didn't give my phone number out, Richard. Thanks. This time. I'm going to start doing that though. Um, we're joined today by Jordana, Jordana Zeldin of Spring Training uh, which is a sales training organization. She's been a huge part of SV Academy. She's also part of the Sales Enablement Society and has a really fun background. So we're going to say thank you for joining us and then turn it over to you to sort of, you know, explain where you came from to give people perspective on where this conversation is coming from, from your point of view. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for being here. So in terms of, yeah, in terms of my background, um, I got into B2B sales about seven years ago. It was not intentional. Um, I was working in the art world. I was running a nonprofit arts organization and, and curating a gallery and, and starting to deal art really to move, you know, expensive pieces of art between rich people. And that's like um, the most New York job ever, by the way. It's, it's, it's such a New York job. And it was so clear to me immediately that, that it had nothing to do with what excited me about getting into art in the first place, which was working with artists and being in their studios and learning about their ideas and their processes. So that was, that was just not a fit for me. And there was an amazing company um, called Artsy, they're still around, a venture-backed tech company whose whole mission was to bring all the world's art online and essentially to make art accessible to anyone who had an internet connection. And I was excited about the mission and I love the company's values. And I joined uh, joined the sales team there, really having no um, hard selling skills or any references for what B2B selling even looked like. Um, and you know, we had a lot of money behind us at the company, but but none of us on the sales team really knew exactly what we were doing. And and for the first couple of years, we were really the blind leading the blind. Um, and it wasn't until we got a really seasoned, actually very young, but like just incredible sales leader, wildly emotionally intelligent, who signed on and basically took the team from a bunch of amateurs to like a serious force to be reckoned with. And um, that's when I started to kind of in some ways, you know, take off, I guess, in, in my sales I have, career. I have a question. Yeah. What most expensive piece of art you were able to sell between rich people? So good question. So I didn't actually make this sale, but the most expensive work that I was working on and that ultimately failed because the buyer ended up, or the seller ended up selling it to someone else behind my back, which is classic, like art world tactics was $7 million. Fuck. Yeah. Was it, what was it? Was it a painting? It was a Jeff Koons sculpture. A sculpture. Maybe it was 14 million. I mean, this, I mean, it was a small, it was a small sculpture, but it was from this like iconic series of Jeff Koons. Yeah. Scott. I'm you 14 <laughs> is double seven. This I know, but I, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. I'm trying to think if it was like the, the, the okay. So the, so the three words that are sticking out in my mind are seven, 11 and 14. And I don't, I don't remember what it, what it was, but it was a lot of money. And the crazy thing is about when you are operating in the art world 
And the deck, unless you have money, which I, I'm not independently wealthy, I don't come from a pedigreed family, is that you cannot let on to your clients who are all very rich people how badly you need the money from the sales that you are working on. And you can work for months on a single sale and there could be 40, 50, $60,000 of commission you know, I was going to ask, like, what, what would your commission be on a, on a deal like that? God, something. Well, so in, in the art world, commission is typically like, you know, 10%. But as the, the cost of the piece goes up, the, the percentage goes down. I think it probably would have been between 6 and 7%. It's been so long, guys, that that I'm having trouble even remembering what the numbers were. But it would have been a sizable, a sizable commission. I think it would have been like $50,000. And actually, I remember when the seller that, um, had the piece decided to sell it to someone else, I finally kind of dropped my guard and I said, so-and-so, this would have been a lot. This would have been a, a meaningful amount of money for me. This would have been $50,000. And I'll never forget this. We were sitting in his car and he said, Jordana, $50,000 isn't real money. And then I was like, okay, in my mind, I was like, I am so in the wrong in the wrong <laughs> ballpark, in the wrong game. Get me the hell out of here. Oh so, my God. Yeah. And what's crazy too, I'll just say, and then we, I know we've got a lot more to get into, but in the art world, I mean, like there's like this, there's like this gloss, there's this glamour, you're kind of dealing with the who's who and, the, and there's a lot of intimidation there. And none of that was, was anything that was interesting to me. So it was just a very, very weird and strange time. This aligns yeah. to me with a big enterprise deal, right? Like it's <laughs> the equivalent of a, of a million dollar or $2 million enterprise deal. You've got a competition, right? Your customer is going to go behind your back and talk to your competition, you know, they don't care about you or your commission. Um, yeah. The long sales cycle. There's a lot of emotion. Um, but it is interesting. It's a different, look, I've never talked about this with anybody, although I do have this statue. I'll have to send you like, we don't know what it's from. So, you know, maybe it's worth 50 bucks, but you know, who knows? Yeah. I'll send it to you. I'll send you a, a description of it. And you can say, yeah, Richard, that's not worth anything. Yeah, but if, if, if you're yeah. closing a, a million dollar, let alone a 7 million or a $14 million deal, in, in SaaS or in tech, you better be getting a commission check more than $50,000. That's what I'm thinking too. Like that's holy mackerel. Yeah. Wow. Then maybe that it's, that's funny. Like, as I'm saying, I'm like, well, maybe the, the amount was low. It, it might've been for, for, you know, don't, don't trust me in terms of what the actual value of the sculpture was. Cause it's totally evading me, but the commission on this would have been, I, maybe it was 3 million. The commission would have been 50 grand. Cause I remember so clearly saying this would have been $50,000 for me. But I think what's interesting about selling art. So AI was not aware of any sales skills to speak of. But also it's all about, it's entirely about perceived value because, you know, to someone who's not in the art world, they could look at the sculpture that was however many millions that I was trying to move and say, yeah, that looks like something I could buy at a garage sale for 10 bucks, you know. Do you ever, do you ever feel that way about, about selling yourself in terms of, of training and, and coaching? Like it's so much of perceived value as, as opposed to buying something tangible? So yes, however, what I have to offer is directly tied to an individual or an organization's ability to generate revenue in a way that a multi-million dollar sculpture sitting on the yeah. mantle of a collector is not. It makes sense to me. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question though. Yeah. It also, so makes, me, it also makes me think just about how, how one goes about setting their prices right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, pricing in the art world is such a crazy thing, but like, you well, know, it's also crazy in the, in the consulting world, 
Well, that's true. I think, right? Like, is it a thousand dollars for me to talk today? Is it five? Is it 10? Is it 50? And, and knowing that a particular sum of money may mean a lot to you and may mean nothing to the person who's cutting the check to you, right? And knowing how to play that game and that dynamic. I know Richard deals with this quite a bit. Richard has a lot more corporate clients than, uh, than I do. I primarily work with, with startups. So, um, I'm just wondering as you, you've been on your own now for a year and a half. No, no. So I'm one of the many kind of co, you know, COVID casualties. It's actually been a wild blessing in disguise, but I was laid off from my coaching and training job. uh, I guess it was in June. So I'm, I'm in the, in some ways in the, in the earliest days. So you're, you're trying to, you're building this business right in the middle of all this. Camp. I am in business building mode. And what's interesting is that uh, one of my dream companies, one that I aspired to work for for many years called Life Labs, before my layoff, they had offered me a job and I had accepted it. And then they had to pull the plug, um, you know, due to uncertainty around the pandemic. And they came back to me a few months ago and said, we're ready for you. And I've been so excited about the, the potential here and the momentum that I'm feeling and the ability to build something around my, my kind of my own voice and perspective and on my own terms that I decided that I would pass. And actually I, I did a workshop for them, a training workshop for them, um, two days ago. So <laughs> from, you know, from potential employer to, to potential client, but I'm, you know, the layoff for me has been though the, the circumstances, of course, of COVID and everything that's happening are so unfortunate. I'm one of those people that has just really hit my stride during this time in a surprising way. So I want to, I want to shift out of that and congratulations on it. And, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what you focus on so that people understand again. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, you're entitled to talk a little bit about yourself, so it's okay. <laughs> Thank you. you. come up with the name Spring Training? And by the way, it's with two eyes, Spring two eyes. Training. How'd you come up with that? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. So Sales Gym, the organization that I worked for prior to, to founding Spring Training, they had a really interesting approach to, to, to how they trained. And what they did is they took their inspiration from how athletes train, right? Deliberate practice, re- repetition, actual doing of a skill as you're learning it, and and apply that to selling. And I know there's a lot of talk on LinkedIn about our salespeople like athletes, or you know why aren't we training more like athletes? And I've, in my experience, kind of training sellers that way, I found it to be incredibly effective. And I think that once um, once you see the impact of learning by doing as opposed to learning by talking about or philosophizing or theorizing, it's hard to unsee that. So the genesis of the idea of spring training was that I that I, I wanted to carry that approach through. But the two eyes um, are two things. It's you and your coach, but it's also you and your prospect. And so they're, they're kind of like these little figures because for me, at the heart of selling is a relationship, a really important one. And Um, No matter if you are a quote unquote relationship builder or whatever kind of seller you are, it's undeniable that there's a relationship there. And a lot of the way that I think about training and, and, you know, talk about the sales process comes back to what do human beings on a really fundamental basis need in relationship? Because the chances are very good. Sorry, Richard. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I think go ahead with that. Because I do have a question, but I thought that was an interesting statement. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, and then like the chances are good <laughs> that what people need, period, at a fundamental level, apply to the sales relationship. And if we can develop awareness around that and provide that throughout in a structured way, you know, with processes and frameworks and whatever, so it's not just kind of unbridled humanity, then we will be better sellers for it. So. Wow, that's deep. Scott. <laughs> Scott. Scott's over here going, wow, holy mackerel, um, which I am too, which I am too. I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to go a little fluffier than that. Um, I'm ready. We can dive back in. Yeah. Because you talk about sports, because you talk about spring training, are you a baseball fan? No, I mean, not, not no, but I mean, I don't, I don't know a single player's name. I was a terrible athlete and I was like the arty theater kid, you know, so that's, that's the kind of irony in a way that I come out of this whole, this whole art world. And in some ways I'm, I guess, like appropriating sales, um, you know, sports terminology, but, but practice, there's practice you, in theater, practice in music. In yeah. The, Richard. Yes. But, but to your point, so you're in theater, how often are you running your lines? How often are you practicing well, that's the, thing. the role play? Right. Yeah. Um, which is something I, I mean, I mean, seriously, like if you think back, like even to the first time when you were, I don't know if you started when you were a kid and you were, you know, in Annie as, you know, somebody or. I was or, in Annie as somebody. Yeah. <laughs> who were you? I was Grace Farrell, the, the, the woman who reformed Daddy Borbox and turned him into a loving man. Oh, okay. A loving, compassionate man. <laughs> Do you know oh, the play? I guess everyone does. Very well, actually. Yeah. That, I think that was my first. Broadway play as a kid, my, my parents took me to New York kind of stuff. They always expose me to these things. Oh, amazing. Uh, cool. But a, even as a kid, often do you think you are practicing and, and practice versus rehearse? Those are two different things in your world, right? And I think it's the same mm -hmm. in sales. Yeah. I mean, in theater, rehearsal, practice and rehearsal is kind of everything. I think as a kid, I didn't have a very strong practice practice ethic. I wasn't practicing as much as I should, but I mean, you were spending months in rehearsal before, you know, opening night. Yeah. To get every moment as right as possible. Every moment as right as possible. Yeah. So, and to me, that's, that's, and you're selling your audience. You're selling the audience that you are this character, not, you know, just somebody up there, you know, spouting things, right? Like a sale, like some salespeople. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> It's interesting and and like there are different schools of thought in this in theater and I think also in sales, but you know, there are some approaches in theater where it's like it's all about not only just the script and the lines, but like you rehearse the way you were gonna say the thing you were gonna say. But then there's another kind of school of thought, and this is what I connect with more, which is like get the lines. Okay, just get them down, even by rote. There's there's a, a theater practitioner from I guess like the probably the nineteen 50s, 60s, called Sanford Meisner. And his whole thing was like, just learn your lines by rote, literally. Romeo, Romeo, where, for, right. And then do your kind of emotional priming work before you get on stage. So imagine like, you know, you're the character, you're the circumstances, this is the, the world that you're living in. And then come on to stage and be in the moment with your partner so that you're not, the way that you're delivering your lines um, aren't rehearsed, you're able to be responsive in real time. And that relates to me in sales. It's like scripts versus frameworks in a way. I, I think one of the most underrated things to coach and teach and develop in sales training is the tonality 
and, and how you say certain things. I can remember sitting with this one particular sales rep of mine and making her pitch the first line to me probably 50, 60 times in a row <clears throat> until she oh, got that's right. interesting because it just didn't sound right. And I'd be like, did you, did you hear that? No, you were way too fast. Did you hear that? You sounded irritated. Did you hear that? You were putting me to sleep just over and over and over until somebody nailed the, the tonality. There's not a lot of coaching and training around tonality. So, so how would you go about and do you go about um, kind of applying what you learned in, in theater there to how you're teaching sales teams? Well, it's funny, Scott, because like what you're saying in some ways sounds like it's more of the school of practice, not only what you're saying, but really how you're delivering it. 100%. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, like I oddly come at it and this is always this is always evolving, but I oddly I oddly come at it kind of the opposite these days, which is that you know some of the sellers that I work with, um, they have this idea that like if they have to if you know if they're selling, they have to sound a certain way, they have to sound confident, they have to. And what I try to do is encourage them to connect enough with themselves to just be wherever they are, and if they're not feeling hyped up in that day to just authentically be, if they're a little low energy even. And I know that's, that might sound a little controversial, but the reason that I say it is because I think more important than the exterior presentation is the like under the surface ability to connect with another human being. And I think if you're thinking presentationally, it becomes really hard to develop the kind of trust that's required for a real relationship. I don't know, tell me. I don't, I don't know that we're, in as much disagreement as you might as you might think. What 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 yeah, I, say more. what I what I feel like full agreement. It's just a it's a perspective of how you're bringing it forward. Where you know Scott has um, you know tremendous ability to act in a very different way. Um, whereas Jordana, you're trained to think in certain ways. You know, but you're getting to the exact same place. Um, although I, I still think you're you're probably a, a much better actor than, than Scott. <laughs> I, just, I wasn't I, a very good actor either, guys. Yeah. You can never, you can just, never I, tame Scott and hit, you know make him warm up like you did Daddy Warbucks. I can just <laughs> that, would, that would be the greatest sale of all time. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got a heart of, of coal inside of him that's hard to melt. Just um, wait until I start singing. No, I'm kidding. I'm not a very good singer either. Yeah, Scott, go ahead. I, I, I think people obsess too much about what they're supposed to say and don't spend enough time thinking about how they say it. And, yeah, and, and you're, so therefore I feel like we're talking about the same thing a little bit because you're talking about like, how do you feel like what's inside of you being true, being authentic, connecting with somebody on a human level, whether that's laughter, pain, whatever. And th th that's the same kind of love language to me. And, and mm. I, I think people get so fixated on like, okay, here's the lines. I don't yeah. remember how you phrase it, but like, here's the sales script, say these lines, right? And like, I could say those lines one way and you could say them a different way. And we sound like two totally different people and one way will be effective and one way won't be. Right. So people will come back to you who are struggling. They're like, I don't know, you know, what's going on. I'm doing everything you say. I'm reading the script, you know, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And then you listen to them talk and you're like, Jesus, I wouldn't buy a beer from you if you were my bartender. You sound horrible. Right. right? So that's what I'm, I'm getting at. So how are you getting somebody to connect with the emotion and how they're, and how they're feeling and, and, and become self-aware and emote that 
somehow to the prospect to build that relationship? It's such a good question. And I've been thinking to myself, like, is there a place for me to incorporate more of what I learned from the theater into how I'm trading, just from a very practical perspective? And I don't know if I have an answer to that yet, because you're right. I mean, let's say as a seller, <laughs> you're feeling really crappy. It's still your job to excite the, the prospect into wanting to, at the very least, learn more about what you have to sell. And just because you're authentically in a bad mood doesn't mean that's the place that's going to serve you most effectively sure. in your selling. And that's that's an interesting thing that I've that I've really been thinking about. It's like it's about bringing awareness to the 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 like fundamental needs of what what people need as human beings and who you are, but then harnessing the ones that are best going to serve what is ultimately something that's outcome based. You know, which is either they, you know, transferring enthusiasm or solving needs, sol you know, solving problems and, and helping to connect the dots and drive people to a decision. And I'm not sure, honestly, as it relates to your question, if I have an answer or like a set approach that I follow. That's okay. You don't have, you don't have to have one set approach. There's uh, many different approaches that can work for many different situations and, and different people. Let me, yeah. let me pull us, us out of this conversation for a second and I want to ask you a difficult question so you you said you were a COVID layoff mm. right so last last summer so how do you decide to start your own thing and run your own sales consulting company versus oh shit I, I better go find another sales job what what was that thought process and decision making process like for you yeah, that, that so it's interesting. I think it comes back to so I think it was about two years prior to this recent layoff. I was laid off from Artsy when I had gone remote and they decided to downsize their team and let go of all remote team members. And at that moment, I had just moved from New York City to upstate New York. There, there's no there's no real job market up here, but I was also in a place where I was thinking about a career transition because what I didn't mention is that you know once I hit my stride as a seller on the artsy team, I started to coach and train junior team members and and my peers and like the fulfillment that I felt in in helping other people to succeed as sellers was infinitely greater than anything that I had felt as a seller myself. Yeah. That's, so that's a universal upstate New York though. What what part of upstate New York? So so I'm in I'm just outside of Hudson. So not like cr cr crazy in the sticks, but I'm two hours north of the city. And when I was laid off from Artsy, I knew that I had a curiosity about what it could mean to be a sales coach, but I wasn't even sure how to do that. So I got myself a coach of my own, an incredible, incredible career coach by the name of Mark Dickstein. And he it's, it's funny, like when you work with a coach, it's kind of like, what exactly did they do to help facilitate this, the transformation? But I had spent most of my early professional life thinking that I needed to show up as someone who knew all the answers. And what he allowed me to do was tap into my own curiosity and somehow allowed me to understand that my seeking information or wanting to know things wasn't weak, but rather powerful and worthy. And I started to reach out to people earnestly without needing to position myself as 
you know, an expert to find out about what it could mean to make this career transition. What, and then I found- what, what were the questions that you were asking and, and what were the things you were trying, trying to learn about? Well, I was really trying to understand if, and I was also at the time reading the book, Designing Your Life, and I was really trying to put the pieces together of like what made me feel really thrivey in my life and what my values were and trying to understand how that could connect to a life as a sales coach. And then just very practically, how do you become a sales coach? Like, where do, where do you go to do that? And it just so happened that as I was looking online, I found Sales Gym and fell in love with the team there and, and got my first sales coaching job. And it was in that year that I was essentially testing the hypothesis, is this something that I really want to do? And it was also a year where I actually learned about structure around coaching and wasn't just intuitively, you know, coaching my team. And after I, after the COVID layoff or during the COVID layoff, I think part of it was that I felt more knowledgeable than ever before around coaching. I felt more in love than ever before uh, with coaching. And I had found this community on LinkedIn, I guess it was back in March and April. And in some ways engaging with the community and having the kinds of conversations I was having and building the real network of support that I was able to build made me feel like I had the resources, not the money, but the, the people resources to give this a shot. Yeah. I love the word thrivey, by the way. I need, I need to steal this word. I've never- Yeah, heard, like you know that feeling, right? I've never like, heard thrivey before, but I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. Desi- designing your life is cool because one of the exercises in the book is that they ask you to, to kind of mentally go back and remember the peak experiences in your life. Like what, you know, what, what was the time when you felt like most connected and flow? Like what were you doing? Who were you with? What was the environment? And you can kind of work backwards from those experiences to try to craft a life that allows you so, to have more of them. So tactically, you, you, <clears throat> you figure out, you get a coach, you, you, find like a group of people to learn from and start asking questions. How do you actually begin? Like, where do your first clients come from? How do you go find them? Where do you find them? Are you prospecting? Are they coming inbound? Are you tapping into the old art world network? Cause it's familiar and maybe easier. So it helps you get your sea legs quicker. How does one go about that? And, and I think this is a important question because, you know, I think in 2020, like everybody's side hustle became, at least close to their main thing. And everybody yeah. realized like, oh shit, I can't rely on one job because that job might disappear at any moment, yeah. right? And I think everybody wants to kind of explore the entrepreneurial side uh, of themselves. And a lot of people don't know where to begin. And that's the scary part is like, okay, now, you're, now you run your own business, now you're a sales coach. Where mm-hmm. the fuck do I find my first clients? So how, yeah. did, how, did, you, how did you go about that? So I hate to make it sound as simple as LinkedIn. <laughs> But, and I'll talk about how it all happened, but you so a that simple, that's where, that's, that's where mine come, come from. Oh. Me too. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not, I guess I'm not surprised. I mean, so my first clients were free one-on-one clients where I was trying to work out what my training approach was. And I'm still, I'm always building my curriculum and, and offerings and all of that. And then about five to six months in, and I had unemployment, right, as a buffer and the, you know, the, the pithy stimulus that came in. So we were okay in a little bit of savings. And actually, Richard, in the, the episode with Liz Wenling, you asked her a really good question about how you amass the savings and what the tricks are. And I can actually tell you because a financial consultant helped me there. So I'd be happy to share how oh, I well. got a savings enough that was substantial enough to actually try to do this now. Um, 
And I started actively posting. I started actively posting on LinkedIn and sharing my thoughts and engaging in a meaningful way with other people's content and appearing on you know, a podcast from time to time. And in about five months, organizations started to get in touch. And that is how to date. And I'm not like at this stage, like so busy. I don't know what to, I'm still in the early stage stages of building, but that is how to date. I have been building my business. And so, so has it been a hundred percent inbound for you? It has been or demand, or demand gen driven from the content that you're producing and, and the, the activity that you're uh, participating in, in the community. Well, not entirely because um, I, I might begin conversations with someone through LinkedIn and, you know, just connecting or whatever. And then I would start to ask them about what's happening in their organization. And they, you know, this one person I'm going to be starting to work with, we just had a great back and forth. And I sent him some, some, you know, articles or some posts that I had done that he really connected to. And when, you know, he shared with me that he was just growing his sales team. And I said, look, if I can be a helpful resource for you, be it me or be it sending you to someone that I've come to know and trust, I'd love to do that. And we had a conversation and it, it turned out that I could be that resource. And, you know, now we're talking about working together. So it was a combination of, you know, not, not a direct, pardon? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, not a direct inbound, like I want to work with you, but kind of nurturing and developing a relationship through, yeah, based around some of the content that I was making. Yeah, I, I think that that's awesome. In terms of this, I'm going to cut Scott off because he's been talking for 20 fucking minutes. Um, uh, but, I feel like I'm talking too much, guys. No, well, you're here. That's what you're here for. The show. You're the one. I know. What do we someone, care? someone the other day was like, Jordana, you need to find a way to respond to questions on podcasts in 45 seconds, not three minutes. I was like, noted. No, I mean, only. I first of all, I think your answers are massively compelling and different. So, and you're bringing such a unique perspective that it's worthy of three minutes. Oh, um, thanks, Richard. And I, and I, and I would say like. And I have this thing too, where I just sort of have diarrhea of the mouth. And the best advice I, I've been given, but still struggle to follow is, you know, be brilliant, be brief and be gone. Um, that's the, that's sort of the mode, advice. but it doesn't quite exercise that way. Um, as you can tell in this moment. So, but what do you help companies do? Like the pain you're solving for an organization and, you know, not necessarily from a pitch perspective, but again, you have, I'm a sales trainer. Scott and a consultant, Scott's a sales trainer and consultant. You know, I think you've learned, you know, I hope you've learned like, it's very rare that we all get angry if we lose a deal to somebody, maybe never yeah. now and then we tend to sort of know our swim lanes and then we try to support each other. Um, what, what do you help people do? Cause I still don't quite know. It's interesting what you say about the swim lane thing. Cause I totally agree. I feel like there's so much to go around and that that's really rare in most industries. So I really appreciate about appreciate that about this space. So here's, and, and I've been asking myself, how am I different, right? As I'm trying to figure out what exactly this business looks like. But I think something that is often not acknowledged in sales training is that many people in sales feel really uncomfortable about selling. I did. I know so many people who do. And I think that 
we, part of what we need to do is acknowledge that. And like with the workshop that I was leading a couple of days ago, it's like, how many of you feel really uncomfortable doing your job day to day? And like 90% of the people raise their hand. And it's like, if we can't first start to talk about that and help them to understand what selling really is at a fundamental level, then we've got a problem. So part of what I help organizations and sales teams to do is reframe how they're thinking about their work and help them to understand that the best of their humanity and the best of selling are not at odds. They are one in the same. Empathy, curiosity, listening, teaching, helping, problem solving, right? All the good stuff applies in both. Um, and that sales skills exist not to teach us to be better manipulators and deceivers, as many people in sales still think, but rather they're designed to give support and structure to the parts of our humanity that can best serve this process of helping to move people now, forward. Now I'm going to tell you, stop three minutes. Tell me. Say it again, right? Well, say it say again. I solve this pain in the sales world. Okay. So, so okay. <laughs> That's a real, I, no, noted, no, noted. So I think what, what I help to help organizations to do is be more human in their selling conversations, period. I, that's what my my thought was. You're bringing humanity back into the sales conversation. I am bringing humanity back into the sales conversation by reminding sales teams what they already know about what people need at a fundamental level and help them to apply that to the selling conversation so it serves both their prospects' goals of getting help for their problems and their goals of moving the ball forward. Right, you yes. gotta get that, now you got to get that down to 20 words or less. <laughs> Richard, you're so right, though. You're so right. I mean, look, my, my tagline on LinkedIn is like sales training for human beings and human teams. And I mean that, right? And I think that our but humanity that, somehow unlocks the key. Right. Pardon? Now you need to say, what does that help the company do, right? So my tagline, right, is I teach reps how to earn the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when. That's great. And there's not a salesperson who doesn't understand exactly what that means and a sales leader who can't go, yeah, we could get better at that. So that's where I'm encouraging you. Mm. How do we How do we take what you do? And part of this is just the exercise of like teaching people how to refine their moment, right? I love it. And so- how do we help you get that? And we may not do it here, but yeah. You know, how do we how do we encourage you to get to that place? Right. What if it's something as simple as, you know, I help organizations and sellers bring more humanity into their selling for better prospect relationships and better outcomes? Yeah. I would I would say that I think that's it. And you could even say to just drive revenue. Right. You drive revenue in a very human way. Right. As much as although I can see you squirm, people can't it's see it. Right. She's squirming She's around like the word. It's not. Well, no, here's the thing. It's it's not repelling about red. No, I just kind of do this. It's not about. So here's the thing, though, is that I wanted to drive teams to drive revenue and to feel better about their work so that they can sleep at night and feel like they've done a service, like that they have a real purpose in their work. So it's it's those two pieces. Yeah. Well, now, now you have some homework, right? I love it, Richard. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. I help. I also help companies from time to time help, you know, refine and clarify their value props. So I, I really appreciate what we're doing here. I would even change that is you help them refine their story. Mm. Right. Like it's because yeah. it is about storytelling. Like, I think that's a huge piece of your art and humanities and um, theater background that, that, uh, and if you don't follow Andy Raskin, you should. He's all he does a whole thing on storytelling, um, where he actually went and read books on how you write a movie, like what's oh, wow. the art of the characters, right? Oh, cool. But I think you really 
help with that storytelling in a concise and human, humane way that supports the prospects and customers, right? To drive mm. revenue. So, mm. Mm. so what would you we, say? We, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I, unfortunately we have to wrap. Although I feel like I could go another two hours with you. I don't um, want to stop. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, I, you know, I've been super excited by this one and this is why we don't ever plan, right? Like this is so much more fun. Um, this has been great. But a huge, we got our, our final question, but, um, you know, big thanks to our sponsors of Lead411, Salesforce, Revenue Cloud, Vidyard, and Wingman um, to support people in driving their humanity to, towards their revenue goals. Maybe that's it. You're driving humanity to the revenue goals. Um, but Jordana, Jordana, and it can go both ways, she told us earlier, um, what can we do to help you? How can we be supportive to you? That's a, such a good question. I mean, so live here on air or just in the future? Whatever you want. So one, I've loved connecting with both of you guys. And I love the idea of being able to keep the conversation up in some fashion beyond this, even if it's just help. I have a question. You guys are further, further down the path than I am a lot further. Yeah, happy to do it. I'll go that same. Happy to. Okay. That's amazing. And then two, I'm just curious, you know, in, as it relates to messaging, both you, Scott and Richard, like, what would you say that people, that revenue leaders who are looking to bring external consultants and trainers get most excited about hearing you do? I think it's that they like the idea of someone else coaching um, and teaching because they feel like mom and dad, like at some point, you know, even as a consultant, if I were there every day for a month, people would get tired of me. So one is it's a fresh voice. I think it's also a fresh perspective. I also think it's um, they can feel comfortable knowing they don't have to do all the coaching because I think they feel pressured with everything else they're doing. Right. So not that you're going to take over, but you can give them some relief and support like that's the humanity part of it is that like, Hey, I'm, I'm here to support you. And I'm, I'm very comfortable saying to all my clients, look, I know that if you make this decision, all spotlights are on you. And if it goes bad, it's on you. Like mm -hmm. I get it. So Jordana, I will never do anything to make you look bad or embarrass you in front of your management team or your peer, your, or your peers or the, your team. And I think that's the piece that helps them sort of make these decisions and makes them comfortable with it. How, and, and then I'll, Scott, I want to ask you too, but Richard, how important is it for your clients that revenue increases directly as a result of your work? Uh, it's always important, right? But they always say ROI and I always turn it into economic impact, right? Like you can't, you can reduce churn and that drives, that's driving revenue. And, but you don't always know that you would have, whether or not you would have lost that deal. And in some cases, it's the logo that you save that may be more important that even if your churn, you still lose other revenue, right? It's like, yeah, but you didn't lose Coca-Cola, right? We took those tactics and you kept Coca-Cola, which is a logo to help you get other revenue. So I, I turn it around into economic impact because nobody believes the R, they only see the I. And I say that directly to everybody. So. Cool. Thank you. Scott, yeah. what about you? Well, <clears throat> I'm a little different. I don't, Richard called me a sales coach or whatever earlier, but I don't, 
I don't really focus on training, to be honest with you, Jordana. That's not my my thing. Um, I have focused my business on <clears throat> helping early stage companies scale from zero to twenty five million or so. So, <clears throat> what what I think founders like to hear and want to hear from me is that um, I can create a process, a simple process that uh, that establishes a foundation that will let them grow and, and, and scale the team and, and scale revenue. So most people I talk to have a good product, no idea how to sell it, certainly no idea how to turn it into a codified sales process. They don't know how to find salespeople. They don't know how to find a sales leader. So I take this messy thing in their, in their world, in their mind, this messy thing that they don't know how to do, and I make it simple. And, and I've, you know, leveraged the almost 20 years of experience I have building and scaling sales teams. And I uh, just help them build a, a sales playbook. So we, we crank out a sales playbook, figure out the sales messaging and the sales process. And then I help them find sales people. Um, and off you go. And to your question about the, the ROI, I don't get myself tied into ROI conversations. Mm. I never I never, ever, ever am doing a deal where somebody's like, oh, you know, you need to bring in 100K to justify your, you know, 50K fee or anything like that. No, it's not, it's, it's not about that. Because at the end of the day, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I'll have increased the valuation of your company by millions of dollars. Mm. Millions. So I, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you worrying about nickels and dimes, right? Whatever you're paying me is nothing compared to to Richard's point, the economic impact of everything that I'm helping you build, which is an increase in valuation of your company by millions. But that's also different for Scott because of what he's trying to do for them, right? As you know, that matters. But I do like that line. I'm going to have to say, look, it doesn't matter what the ROI is. I'm here to help you build your valuation. I love that piece. That's, um, yeah, that's brilliant. And, and it doesn't mean you ignore the economic impact question, but it, it it's it's sort of like, yeah, here's the economic impact, and here's what that economic impact even means to you. Now you're right? you're they're all focused on what is the near term re return. Totally right, and so it's just a way of reframing the conversation to make them look at it in a much longer tail. Yeah, yeah. So I also I feel like Scott, we could we could turn around and have this episode again where where Jordana comes on and just asks us a ton of questions. <laughs> I would I would love well, that. When, when when she launches her podcast, we can. So do I, that. That's not in that's not in the pipeline for anytime okay. soon. But, but yeah, I want maybe, to keep talking maybe that's with you guys. Fun, you said how could we help you? Maybe that's a fun way to do it. You just go and record one of these and you put it out and you use it for learning and you just sort of share it. So mm, that's a nice it idea. It's an asset for you. I'd I'd do that. So that's um, a cool idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we we got to wrap, although this has been fascinating and it flew by as it always does when we have great conversations. So thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing thank all these guys. totally different perspectives, but they all go to the same place. It's really fun. Mm. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm glad to know you and I'm excited to keep talking. Likewise. Until next time, everybody. All right. Everybody. Bye.